Welcome here. My name's Matt. Uh, glad to have you, especially if you're, if you're new. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. On this Thanksgiving uh, weekend, uh, you may not realize it, but uh, Canadian Thanksgiving is uh, different than American Thanksgiving. It's on a different day, so it's probably not news. But the origin of uh, Canadian Thanksgiving, at least the modern-day version of it, is um, something that was set out by our government back in 1957. So Vincent Massey, who was the governor general there, on January 31st, 1957, made this proclamation. He says, A day of general thanksgiving to Almighty God for the bountiful harvest with which Canada has been blessed will be observed on the second Monday in October each year. It's kind of a different time for our country uh, back then to have that come from our government, but uh, we continue to do that. And we have the opportunity this weekend to be thankful. So I'm going to pray a uh, prayer of thanksgiving and pray for our country. So join with me. Lord God, we, we are thankful. You have uh, blessed us richly. Um, Lord, every human being who is saved by the gospel is richly blessed. Um, Lord, here in Canada, we have many other practical, uh, more superficial, but still uh, blessings that impact our lives, Lord. We're thankful to live in a, in a free country. We're thankful to live in a, in a country with jobs and with an economy that is relatively stable. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for the many blessings of just being here in this place. And yet, Lord, we know that there are many, many needs in our country. We pray, Lord, for those who are in leadership. We pray for those who have the difficult task of being in political leadership right now. We pray, God, for wisdom for them. We pray, Lord, that you would guide them to make policies that are best for us as a nation. We pray, Lord, for the, the struggles of our nation, Lord. We had a few weeks ago a day of reconciliation because there is still great difficulty, Lord, for those who have First Nations descent, especially in relation to the church, Lord, such strife there, such, a, such heartache there, Lord. We want to pray into that, Lord. I pray that, that we as Christians in this country, Lord, would be ones who exemplify the love and grace of God and that many people, Lord, from all backgrounds would come to know you as Savior and Lord. Lord, that is the hope of our country, and so we pray that for it. And I pray for us now, Lord, that we would... Genuinely be thankful. Help us to see the areas in our lives where we can be thankful even if there's struggle. And Lord, I pray that uh, today as we look into your word, uh, Lord, that as you speak to us, uh, our hearts, uh, Lord, would be filled with hopefulness in light of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, that uh, we would genuinely give thanks. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are in First Peter. Uh, if you're new here with us, we usually just kind of go through books of the Bible. We're in First Peter, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, the, the verses will be up on the screen as we work our way through. We're starting in verse 13 today. But as we begin, uh, I think there's something that I should share with you. Uh, Mondays, we have a staff meeting. And so we had staff meeting this Monday, and uh, as I came back from sort of our staff meeting, uh, there was some tension in the office. I just have to level with you. There was some, some agitation uh, not quite yelling, but some heated words um, from David Kelso in particular. David, who's up here, I know he seems really nice, and he is, but he was very, very passionate. I mean, he's a passionate guy about things that are important to him, the gospel, biblical theology, you know, Christ himself. He's very passionate about those things, and it turns out um, how to organize your email inbox. Very passionate about this. <laughs> he found out that there's some on staff, um, I won't name names, uh, but Courtney is one of them, and, and so am I, who had a number of unread emails. And by a number, I, there may be, you know, four or 5,000 uh, unread emails in my email inbox. And so he was aghast. I mean, he just could not believe that this was true. This was happening right next to him as we work every week. And, and the reason he was so upset is because he knew there was an answer to this problem. 
He knew there were solutions. And so he was passionately explaining to us how the settings of Gmail can be used to actually keep your email inbox clean. That actually, if we, if we put them into practice, uh, we'd be able to clear the backlog. Everyone would be, would be happier. And it turns out he was right, at least about the fact that we did have those tools at our disposal. They're, they're built into Gmail. That is true. The, the real problem, though, is, you know, would we actually use those tools is, I think, the question. And it turns out, for me, the answer is still no. But I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe that will change. I mention this because this, this tension of having an answer but not actually using it is something that we struggle with as human beings. There are lots of things in our lives. Poor health, poor um, diet, poor organization. That There are actually things that we can do. The question is, are we, are we going to do them? And I mention that because in our text today, uh, Peter is going to speak to us again about the hope that we have in the gospel. But what he recognizes is that it's not just enough to know this hope, to know what is true about Jesus and what he's done for sinners. To be hope-filled people, we actually need to put this into practice. And so that's what we find in our, in our text today. We, we find an instruction for us to set our hope fully on this truth. So here it is in the text. I'm going to give it to you right away. It's sort of the main thing that he says. Verse 13b He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying it's not just enough that you know the hope of Jesus, you have to set your hope fully on it. And that means that your life is going to change. And that's what he's going to write about in this section. We're really, two questions are kind of guide our time. One, what does it look like to actually set your hope fully on Jesus And then, what are the motivations that we have to do this? Like, why would we actually do this? So here's the first question. It's up there already. What does it look like to set your hope fully on Jesus? He gives us two things, two practical things. The first is this. um, It looks like a healthy mind. A healthy mind. Uh, Look at verse 13, the full verse. It reads this way. Therefore, and the therefore is talking about the hope that he's explained. Therefore, in light of the gospel... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you can see there those phrases at the beginning all having to do with our um, mental readiness for a task. Uh, to be sober-minded, is, it conveys a sense of, of readiness, to be clear. I mean, if you're drunk, you are unsteady, you're unreliable. You're probably not ready for whatever's going to come your way. But if you're sober, you're, you're clear-headed, you're sharp, you're ready for the next thing, you're ready to react. To prepare your minds for action, uh, in the Greek, it, it literally reads, to gird up your minds. Uh, do you know that expression, to gird up your loins? Have you heard that? It's like an ancient thing that men would do to gird up your loins. Everyone back then wore uh, free-flowing tunics, right? Very airy and breezy, good for the climate, but... Not so good for battling or fighting or running. So if ever there was a need to do that, what the men would say to each other, men, gird up your loins. And here's what that would mean. I found a graphic uh, on my extensive research on the interweb. Um, So here's what you would do. You take the the tunic, right? Pull it up above your knees. Then you would pull it behind you, pull it up through your legs, and then either tuck it into your belt or tie it off. And then your legs would be ready to run or ninja kick or whatever you wanted to do. It was important, right? If you didn't do that and you tried to go into battle, you'd be all tangled up, you'd fall on your face, it it wouldn't work. 
So the idea here is that just like girding up your loins means that you're agile, you're nimble, you're ready for action, Peter's saying he wants the same thing for our minds. He wants us to be um, disentangled, to be free, to be agile, to be ready, to be faithful in every situation, especially uh, things like trials and testing, which is what he's been, he's been talking about. I think this language is really insightful, really helpful for us, because I think if we're honest, we all know that there are thoughts that can creep into our minds that can definitely tangle us up, that can very easily even knock us to the ground. I mean, we can be having a great day, rejoicing, praising God, and yet there are certain thoughts that when they come into our minds, everything grinds to a halt. We just get totally wrapped up in, in this thought. Sometimes it has to do with the, 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 the passions that are within us, the sinful desires, lust, greed, whatever it is, and we start thinking about something and then we're totally caught up in something that is not good for our soul, not good for our lives. Sometimes the thoughts, though, just connect to things in our past. Uh, things that have happened to us that still evoke great emotion, that, that um, when we start to think about them, uh, they, they, they really draw us into a spiral, right? We be- become filled with anxiety or worry or hopelessness or, or anger, I mean, you probably know the kind of thoughts that I'm, that I'm thinking of, but here are just a, a few of them, right? There are some times when what might creep into our, our mind is, is how, how could I be so stupid? How is it that I always ruined the good things in my life, right? Something might happen and it just, there's this thing that we have the sense that we always wreck everything. Maybe people have told us that we always wreck everything. So as we begin to think about it and going over, all these memories come to our minds. Before long, we're just, we're in a spiral. Can't get out of it. Sometimes people will think that God is punishing them because of their sin. Even Christians sometimes will think, look, this is what God is doing. Give me a consequence again because I made a mistake. I didn't do what's right. I deserve this. I deserve to be punished. And we spiral into this really low place. There's all sorts of thoughts like this that can entangle our mind. Mentally and emotionally, we get stuck in this feedback loop and we can't get out of it. And the effect of it is that we are not ready for the trials and the challenges of faith that come our way. I mean, just think, think for a moment about how many opportunities have been missed by us. Uh, opportunities uh, to, to demonstrate faith, to be loving, to be obedient. And we've missed these opportunities because we've just been so caught up in our own mind. We, we've, we haven't left the house. We haven't gone to community group. Whatever it may be, we're just wrapped up in these in these thoughts, I kind of picture it like, um, you know, we have this idea sometimes we're walking down, our life is like a path, right, that we're walking down, and I have this picture of like a, like a bramble bush, right, on, on the sides of the path, and, and some of these thoughts, it's like we get caught up in the thorns, you know, and, we're, and we're, we're struggling to get free, right, we're trying to pull ourselves free, and so because we're fighting so hard, it feels like we, we have this idea we're still moving forward, but we're not, we're just stuck, and we're just fighting the whole time. It's a battle that's going on in our minds, and it really is a battle of faith and a battle of hope. And what we find in Scripture very clearly is that these kinds of battles are ones that we can win. By the power of God, we can disentangle ourselves, but it requires effort. Um, Here's how Paul writes about this. The Apostle Paul, writing about the same sort of thing, this is to the Corinthian church. He says this in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see the mental aspect of it. He's saying there's a war there where there are strongholds and yet we have access to resources, spiritual resources to destroy those strongholds, those lies, those deceptions that are going on in our mind. But what's required is that we actually are intentional about identifying those thoughts which are plaguing us, entangling us, and, and doing battle with them, taking them captive for Christ. So what does this look like? That's what I want to get to. What practically does it look like for us to be people who have our hope set fully on the grace of God, pursuing healthy minds? Well, it must mean that we can't just allow our, mind, our, our thoughts to run rampant in our minds. That's what happens a lot of the time, I think, right? We're just kind of going through our lives. Thoughts are coming in. We're not really paying much attention. Before long, they're grabbing hold of us. We can't allow that to happen. We need to confront certain thoughts in our minds with the truth of God's word and thereby disentangle ourselves, ready ourselves for faithfulness. So I'm going to give you one strategy for how you could do this. There's probably lots of different ones, but here's one that's been helpful for me and people in my life. Very simple. Just get yourself a notebook, piece of paper, and make two columns. On the one side, you're going to write down the thoughts that you're having. And on the other side, you're going to write down uh, the truths of God's word. So, for example, you might be thinking to yourself, you have to write actually what you're thinking. If you stop, you realize that you're kind of in this, in this spiral. What exactly am I thinking right now? What am I believing? For example, you might write down, I feel worthless. I feel worthless. For maybe lots of reasons. Maybe people are telling you that you are worthless. Maybe just the experience of your life. Whatever it is, that's what's coming back to you again and again and again. And so you write it down and then you ask the question, is this actually true? Notice the question is not, do I feel like it's true? Do I think it's true? Are other people in my life saying it's true? The question is, does God think that this is true? And for that, you need to do the work of going to the Bible. Because the Bible is the revealed word of God. And there, there's lots of answers to this to show that it's not true. Here's what, just one of them. Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 12. He says to his disciples, why even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Remember, he's talking about how they're worth more than all the creation, all the birds that God cares for. There is an answer. Very clearly, that thought is not true. And so because it's not true, then I would encourage you, just cross it out. Put a big X, whatever you need to do tangibly to remind yourself this actually is not true. And then the hard work. That's just preamble. The hard work is you actually do battle with that thought in your mind. When you begin to think it, you, you rebuke it. You, you say, this is not true. I know it is true. What's true is that I'm loved. I'm valued. More valued than the, than the whole of creation made in the image of God, Jesus died for me, that's what's true. And so you take that thought captive, you reject it, and you actually put it out of your mind over and over and over again until you get into a better pattern of believing the things that actually are true about you. This is what it means to be sober-minded. This is what it means to be ready for action. This is what it means to set our hope fully on the grace of God, believing the things that are true according to God's point of view. This means instead of being stuck in the brambles, right, we're, we're disentangled. We're actually able to walk forward in faith, filled with hope, knowing who God is and how he feels about us. That's, that's the first thing that Peter mentions in terms of being hope-filled people, that we have healthy minds. The second thing is actually bigger. The second thing actually encompasses a healthy mind. Uh, it's uh, 
holy living is how we're going to say it. He talks about holy conduct. Uh, Here's what it says in verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So holiness, uh, to be holy is a technical term. It basically has to do with being pure, spotless, uh, perfect, righteous, set apart. It's very clear throughout the whole Bible that God is holy. I mean, one of the most famous scenes in the Old Testament is when Isaiah gets a glimpse into the throne room of God. And he he has to shield his eyes for the brightness and all he can see are these angelic creatures. And and they are covering their own eyes because of the, the glory of God. And they're just crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God is holy. Jesus is holy. We're told very clearly in scripture, he is the son of God, made of the same substance of God, but also he's without sin. Even though he came in human form, Hebrews 4.15 says that he was without sin. God's holy, Jesus is holy, and the people of God, we are called to be holy as well. Uh, In the Old Testament, the, the nation of Israel was set apart Right, different than the rest of the, of the nations. Worship the true God, but live differently. Worship differently. They were holy. They, they, were, they were set apart. And we in the New Testament, the New Testament beyond, are also called to be holy. In fact, that's what Peter is telling us in this passage. That's part of what marks you as a hope-filled people. That you have living hope. You believe there's living hope. Well, that means that it's actually going to change the way that you live. And so holiness for us looks practically speaking like repentance, first and foremost. Identifying the sin in our lives, turning from it, asking God to forgive us, claiming that the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross, and then actually turning and walking in the other direction. It means living in a way that exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit. That things like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that that's what people see when they, when they get to know us. That, that we are not harsh, we are not judgmental, that we actually are exhibiting the, the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And that we are people who live in this world, but aren't actually of this world. All of those kinds of things are, is, is holiness. It's what we are to pursue. Now my question, before we go any further, is does that sound appealing at all to you? Like, honestly, is, is that something that you ever really think about if you're a Christian and you're thinking about how to live your life? Because there have been certain times in history where the church has um, focused a lot on holiness. I don't think we're in one of it right now, frankly. I just think we don't think about this that much. The word itself, holiness, it, it feels a bit unfamiliar. I'm not sure about you, For all the times people have asked me for prayer requests this past year, I don't think I've said I I would like to be more holy. And yet, this is very clearly, I mean, it's the essence of God. He is holy, and very clearly we are called to be holy as well. Here's the thing we need to realize. It's impossible to be faithful as a Christian and ignore holiness. Like for not to be on our radar at all. It's impossible. It's even more impossible in light of this text here, to be a people who have hope without making holiness something that we strive for. Which is actually pretty obvious if you think about it. I mean, if we are a people that have been saved to a living hope, like we have this new living hope, born again, new desires, but we're still living like we did before, that those are two things in opposite directions. 
it, it can't be the case that we would be able to be people of a living hope, but still living the way that we lived before. To be filled with hope, um, in part, is to be pursuing holiness. Now, just because this is clear, or hopefully becoming clear, doesn't mean that it's, that it's easy. Uh, Peter uh, knows it's not easy. That's why he said in the, in the verse there, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Meaning he's recognizing to these Christians who've been you know, set free, they've been born again. He's like, listen, you have to be careful that you're not still conformed to the way that you were living before. Because that's always a danger. In fact, that's a danger in any time that we're trying to get past something that's destructive in our lives. Um, think of addiction. We, we were talking about this uh, in our community group. Uh, Esther, who's in our group, she worked, has worked with people who in addiction recovery, and she was saying, sharing, what, what may be obvious, but look, there are times when people seem to be genuinely like, healed from their addiction. I mean, they've gone through detox, all the drugs are out of the system, all the alcohol is out of their system. They don't have any desire for it anymore, amazingly. There, there are some people, by the grace of God, by whatever it is, they don't have that desire, but what Esther was saying is it doesn't mean they're immune from what would happen if they begin to engage in that lifestyle again. If they went to hang out in certain places again, meet with certain people again, party in the way they did before, then it, they're going to be in trouble again. They're going to be sucked back into those same uh, addictions, and it's the same with sin. Just because we've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus or some powerful encounter with the Lord doesn't mean that we are impervious to the lure of our former sinful behavior. To be committed to holiness, we need to be committed to repentance, committed to turning from our sinful behavior, sinful lifestyles, guarding ourselves so that we don't slip into our, our former ignorance, our former passions. Uh, John Owen is a Puritan. The Puritans, they know something about holiness. Um, here's what he says. He explains it this way. He says, Let not man think that he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. Which is a Puritan way of saying, you can't grow in holiness unless you actually move past the, the sinful desires, the, the lusts that are within you. You can't hope to actually make any gains in godliness if you haven't actually dealt with the sin in your life. I don't think we do this very well. In fact, I think we have this um, understanding sometimes that the Christian life just means we're always going to struggle with certain sins. I think some of us have this idea that this is just what it means to be a Christian. That it's like two steps forward, three steps back, two steps forward. We're always just kind of struggling. And that's just how it's going to be before heaven. We shouldn't expect to actually try to get free from any of these things. But what Peter is saying is, look, that's not a mark of a person who has their hope set fully on the grace of God. That's a mark of someone who's kind of got their feet in two worlds. Right? Wanting to be in kingdom of God, but also still kind of making their home in the kingdom of the world. See, if that's you, if, if you've been struggling with the same sin in the same way for, for months and years, there's reason for concern there. As Christians, we should have a greater expectation for our growth in godliness. We should expect there actually to be some forward progress. We should expect to be able to look back in the last six months or year and see to ourselves, boy, I can actually see where God has been growing me in the areas where I struggle. 
Listen, it's, it's not that there isn't going to be a struggle. There will be until heaven. But we shouldn't be doing the same thing over and over and over again. We should expect there to be a growth in maturity, in holiness, in godliness. That's what God says he's going to do in our lives. To conform us to the image of Christ. If we're having, if it's like our tires are spinning, then it could very well be that this is not a priority for us. That we're just kind of making peace with this struggle. And think about what it says about our faith. Think about what it says about the power of God. If, if we're people who's saying that we're saved by the grace of Jesus, but, we, but God isn't actually strong enough to change us. It doesn't make sense. What we need to understand is holiness is not like a side project. You know, it's not like that thing down in the garage that you're like, man, when I have time, I will get to that. I'm going to renovate that car, restore that car. I'm going to do that thing. That's, that's not what it is. It's not a side project. It is the project in our life. It's how God grows us in faith, grows us in maturity, readies us for heaven itself. We are to be a holy people. That being said, it's not an easy process. I know it's hard. Believe me, I I know that it is hard. If you're here this morning and saying, this all sounds great, but there are some things in my life that I just cannot seem to get past, I know. Jesus knows. Remember, remember what it says in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yet he was without sin. Jesus knows the struggles that we are going through. He knows the temptations. And yet he is still calling us to holiness. Peter knows this too. He knows that this is a difficult calling for us. And so in the last bit of our text, what he does is um, he gives us some motivations for a holy life. He, He gives us some reasons, some compelling and deep-seated reasons for why we should make this uh, at the forefront of how we are trying to live. So that's what we're going to look at. The next section is uh, three motivations for pursuing holiness. Uh, What are they? Number one, we should be holy because the God who called us is holy. We've kind of already seen this, but Peter, he doubles down on it in verse 16. So he said already, um, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's what God said to his people back in the Old Testament. God's basically saying, look, you should be like I am. If you want to imitate something, you should imitate me. I'm holy. You also should be holy. When Jesus said to, to the people that he called, follow me. He didn't just mean, like, go where I go, do the kind of things that I do. What he meant was, you should actually live like me. You should should endeavor to change your very nature so that you would be just like I am. Which totally makes sense. Why would you follow someone if you weren't trying to be like them? I mean, think of if you wanted to to play basketball like LeBron James or soccer like, like Messi. If you wanted that, but you didn't train like them, and you didn't study any of their techniques, you'd be like, what do you, that doesn't make any sense. Right? Why wouldn't you do that? This teaching is not, um, it's not like an implied teaching even in the scripture. It's, it's very clear. Look at Ephesians 5.1. Couldn't be clearer. Therefore, it says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's saying, If you want to know how to live, if you want to know who to emulate in your life, it's God himself. Who better? Who better to imitate than Jesus? Who is more peaceful, more joyful, more content, more bold, more brave? All the things that we want, it's it's Jesus. 
is the one that we should emulate. As he is holy, we should be holy. That's the first reason. Secondly, we should be holy because God the Father is still God the judge. Look at verse 17. Peter writes, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So it's very clear that, that we are to relate to God as Father. We see this in the way that he reveals himself to us. He's not just a king. He's not, just, he's not distant and sovereign. He is a good father. He's gracious. He's tender. He's affectionate. He's generous. This is one of the most amazing things about our faith, that we are, we are his children. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that because he's our father, that he stops being our judge. See, God is not like one of those dads that just turns a blind eye to all of his children's rebellion and foolishness and, you know, uh, wrecking things in the house, not doing their homework rude to the people in their lives, like just horrible behavior. Some dads just turn a blind eye to all this when they're Sons or daughters of 16, buys them a car, says, I love you, on their way, doesn't deal with that's not who our God is. He's a much better dad than that. Our God is like uh, a dad who is also the town police chief, say in a small town. He's a good dad, loves his kids, gracious, lots of second chances. But if one of his children robs the town bank, you better believe that they're going to be arrested. They're going to be put in jail. They're going to stand trial for what they did because he's a, he's a man of the law. See, in our culture, in our day, we spend a lot of time talking about the grace and love of God. And of course we should. I mean, we, we will not be able to get the, to the depths of God's love in this life and maybe even in all of eternity. But we are also warned not to presume upon the grace of God. This is really clearly laid out in the book of Romans. Romans is all about really basically the gospel, how it applies the nature of God. And Paul, who's writing the book of Romans, he wants to make make clear or help us to understand how we should interact, how we should respond to the grace of God. So here's two little sections. Romans 5.20, speaking about the grace, he says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel. This is the amazing love and grace of God. There is no one on earth who can say to themselves, I've sinned too much. God can't forgive me. God says, impossible. That the sacrifice of Jesus is such that no matter how much you've sinned, there's always grace for you. Praise God. This is the depth of his love. But notice that just in, in chapter six, Paul is gonna respond to a misunderstanding of this truth. Because some people will hear this and think to themselves, man, our God is so good. Our God is such a great father, such a loving, gracious father. It doesn't even matter how we live. It doesn't matter. I can live however I want. At the end of the day, I'm just going to say, Jesus died for me and all will be forgiven. So why even pursue holiness now? Because it's really hard, you know. It's hard to do that. Hard to turn from my sin. Why well, go through all the effort? God's going to forgive me anyway. Look at what it says in Romans 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? He's saying, yes, God's grace abounds. 
Yes, he is an amazing father, but don't be so foolish as to think that you can go on sinning and not become a slave to sin and not incur the wrath of God. See, listen, the the Christian life is a life of struggling with sin. We're going to struggle our whole lives. That's okay. That is expected. We're making progress. We're seeing more sin. We're identifying it. We're turning again. We're going to do this the whole time until, until heaven. That's fine. But if we make peace with our sin, if we presume upon the grace of God, if we live for sin, then what we're really showing is that he's not our dad, that we aren't really born again. Because if we were, we would, we would be changed. We would have new appetites, new desires. We wouldn't be able to be at peace with the sin in our lives. What Peter is reminding us is, look, God is judge, right? Don't make peace with the sin. Pursue holiness because he is an impartial judge. We are to conduct ourselves with fear, he says, throughout the time of our exile, which is like our whole life on earth, our time in exile. He's saying, while we are here, we should fear the Lord. And a fear of the Lord, we're told in Scripture, brings wisdom, and it is part of the, part of the things that fuels holiness, because we genuinely recognize that if we just keep giving ourselves over to sin, we are, we are going to shipwreck our faith, reveal the fact that it wasn't actually genuine to begin with. This is what Peter is, is writing, to compel us. saying you, you should be holy because God is Father, but also God is judge. And he takes sin seriously. He's a man of the law. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing. Jesus ransomed us. Look at verses 18 and 19 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So here the argument is pretty straightforward. Peter's reminding us, if you're a Christian, look, you were captive, you were held captive to sin. Uh, You were uh, in the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That sin, in that state, we were unable to free ourselves We were destined to to experience the wrath of God because of our sin, and yet Jesus ransomed us. He paid a price to set us free. Not just silver, gold, not kajillion, billions of dollars, nothing small like that. He paid something that was much more costly, something that no one else could pay. It was his blood, his holy, righteous blood, his very life that atoned for our sin. Jesus, the king of glory, humbled himself by dying on a cross so that we would be be set free, so that he would become our hope. And what Peter is saying, if you know that that's true, if you believe that's true, how could you go back to living in the same things that got you captive in the first place? Like, how how could you do that? Think of it this way. Imagine that you actually were kidnapped. In Brazil, apparently, I did more research, um, in 2018, 600 people were kidnapped in Brazil. So it is something that still happens. So imagine you were there on vacation, enjoying the sun, you were kidnapped, and the, the kidnapper said, we want $2 million to set you free. And so your friends and family found out about it, and they, they raised the money. Right? They set up a GoFundMe page, people were selling stocks and bonds and cars, whatever it is, they, they got together $2 million, they paid the kidnappers, you were set free, you were put on a plane, you've landed in Canada, everyone's celebrating, so excited, there's a big dinner, you get up and you are so thankful, thank you so much, all of you gave so much to set me free, I'm so, 
I just can never repay you. Thank you so much. The meal ends. And you go on with your life. And then it's winter. And you're like, man, it's so dreary here. You know, those beaches in Brazil, they were pretty nice. I think maybe I'll see if there's a deal. And there's a deal. I had a flight to Brazil, so you booked a ticket. Imagine what your friends and family will say when they find out. They'll be like, where are you going? Brazil? Where you were kidnapped? What's do you remember what we had to pay to get set you free? How could you go back there? How could you, how could you offend us that way? Don't, doesn't it mean anything to you what we did for you? See, what Peter is saying is that holiness is part of our way of saying, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, Jesus, you, you give everything to set me free. I don't just want to be saved by you. I want to live for you. I want everyone to see by the way that I live my life that I honor you as Savior and Lord I want everyone to see how grateful I am to you. How, how can we honor him and yet go back to the things that, that held us captive? Peter's saying we should be holy because Jesus ransomed us. He gave everything to set us free. And so we should live in that freedom, being obedient, pursuing the things of God. In our final verses, Peter doubles down, goes back to this the, the, the hope of the gospel. So here's 20 and 21, our last couple verses. It says, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So he's saying there, again, interestingly, that this whole thing with Jesus, the gospel, was foreknown, was planned before the beginning of the world but it was revealed fully in the time of the New Testament. When Jesus finally came, when he died on the cross, when he, when he was raised to new life, then everyone could see, oh, this is what God was doing. This is what he was doing so that we would have hope, so that we would have faith. What we're seeing here is that, that this whole idea of holiness and hope-filledness, they, they go together. They, they, they feed off of each other. In fact, they're, they're like a chain reaction. You know, chain reaction, uh, one of the kids was studying nuclear stuff. I don't know, nuclear fission. I think it's uranium, right? The way it works is there's these chain reactions that develop at like an atomic level and there's, there's so much energy that is released. That is what happens in our lives when we pursue holiness and when we claim the hope that we have in Christ, the two feed off of each other. And it totally makes sense. Because think about it this way. If you're someone who is, who is pursuing holiness, that means that you are seeing sin very clearly. You're recognizing, you're saying, Lord, help me to see the sin in my life. Help me not to turn a blind eye to those areas of disobedience. I want to see it for what it is in all of its gory detail so that I might claim the cross fully. I might, I might find hope in you. I might find victory. Holy Spirit, help me to find victory over this sin that's going to kill me. We see it clearly. We see Jesus clearly. When that's going on in our minds and our hearts, it's so much easier to be hope-filled because when trials come, when challenges come, when the rug gets pulled out from under us and we lose our footing, we, we already have the things that we need at the ready. Trust in Jesus, clear conscience, sober mind, a mind ready for action. We have everything there. And so we, we might get discouraged, certainly. There's tough times, certainly. But, but we're not searching around for how can we get through this. We know how to get through this because we've been actively identifying sin, turning from sin, clinging to Jesus, asking for hope from the Spirit of God, asking for help from the Spirit of God. And so when difficulties come, 
we can set our hope fully on the grace that we know so well because we're used to doing it. So this, this, practically speaking, is what I'm hoping will come out of this text for us. That there will be things, I'm hoping even now, that the Spirit of God is bringing to your mind things that, frankly, you don't really want to deal with. Areas of sin, areas of disobedience, fears, doubts, whatever it may be, and that you will see that it's in dealing with those things that we can pursue holiness, but also that we can be more hope-filled because we won't be entangled by the sin that remains in our life. We'll be more clear-headed, more faithful, more ready to, to grab hold of the things that we know are true. Right? Because that's, that's the rub. That it's not just enough to know the hope of the gospel. We need to put it into practice. We need to be a people who set our hope fully on the grace that God brings. That's my hope for us. I'm going to pray that for us now as we close. Lord Jesus, I do uh, pray that for us. I pray, please, Lord Jesus, that you would, you would help us to do battle with our minds, uh, to do battle with the, the sinful temptations within us. Lord, that we would be a people that pursue holiness. Lord, that if we're here this morning, that we're a follower of you, we're a Christian, Lord, that we would not be content with just uh, some victories in some areas, but that we would want to root all the sin in our lives. Uh, Lord, we want to do that to honor you, to show thankfulness to you, and so that we would really um, have greater access to the hope of the gospel, that we would be a people who, regardless of what happens, regardless of the instabilities of life, that we would know clearly who you are and um, how we can be helped in these difficult times. So, so please help us now. Uh, Holy Spirit, please convict us. Uh, please um, help us to make those practical steps that the scary steps of talking to people in their lives about areas of sin that we haven't yet, of confessing sin to the people around us, of asking for prayer support, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't be foolish enough to think we can do this on our own, but that we would share with others, people in the church, and that we would encourage each other in the hope of the gospel. Lord, that there is no sin so great that you, you don't have enough grace for us, but that that grace is meant to actually change us. And so I pray, please, that we would see evidence of that for our good and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.